Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. When you think about Antarctica, images of an icy, barren landmass come to mind. Well, it wasn't always that way. Around 200 million years ago, it was a lush, temperate region home to crocodile-sized amphibians and rhinoceros-sized dinosaurs. The latest exhibition at Fernbank Museum reveals this lost world. Later this hour, Fernbank's Sarah Arnold will tell us about dinosaurs of Antarctica with interactive elements and full-sized replicas of dinosaurs on display in a habitat created to appear as it would have looked during the time when the region was warm and lush. We'll also listen back to a conversation with Emory University professor Miriam Udell. She has special Hanukkah stories translated from the Yiddish, on this final day of the Jewish Festival of Lights. First, from touring with Beyonce to releasing her first family music album, Divinity Rocks Can Do It All. The Atlanta-born bassist and musician just released her new children's album, Ready, Set, Go, and Two new children's picture books with accompanying songs, Happy and Healthy and Me and You. She joins me now via Zoom. Divinity Rocks, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. How did you first get into playing the bass? Uh, I started playing bass my second year in college at UC Berkeley. I was hanging out with a bunch of musician friends, and uh, I was a freestyle rapper mostly. And one of my friends was playing the bass pretty regularly. Uh, he's carrying around an upright bass, and I mentioned to him that I'd like to play the guitar, and he suggested that I pick up the bass guitar. <laughs> and I did, and I fell in love. Oh, the best of both worlds and a perfect marriage there if you were drawn to bass and guitar. There have been... So many talented black female guitarists and bassists 
throughout our music history. Why do you think most have been overlooked or forgotten? <laughs> well, uh, that's a tendency that happens here in America to ignore and often not properly credit Black people in general for their contributions to music and art and creativity because the premise has always been to paint Black people in a light that is not always bright. Do you think it also could have to do with the instrument itself, that a support instrument, which is not to say there aren't important solos and virtuosity is essential, but it's not the same as the singer being in the spotlight center stage. Do you think there's just not enough credit to? Well, I mean, I think it's natural to give the lead singer their props. <laughs> they are yeah. the lead singer and the voice is often the focal point in popular music. However, the guitar has been around for centuries. Mm -hmm. And you know, actually I have a friend who has been doing a bunch of research about how before the guitar was mass manufactured in America by the companies we are so familiar with, there were groups of artisan black women who were crafting guitars and building guitars. And um, I'm interested to see how her research pans out. I think the guitar in general is a very popular instrument. It always garners attention, you know. Everybody knows the lead guitar player, and everybody's familiar with the lead guitar player in most bands. It's the bassist who usually is overlooked. Exactly. <laughs> the bassist, the coolest person in the band some would argue. All right, so how are you working toward reclaiming that space or identifying that space and making everyone pay attention? You know, part of it is being the lead singer who plays the bass. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there are quite a few of us out in the world and we've been inspired by a bunch of incredible women who came before us. So I believe the bass guitar being one of the younger instruments introduced to the scene and um, into the uh, pantheon of popular music, the bass is starting to be a driving force um, in popular music. And women playing the bass has become really popular over the past 10 years. So, um, you know, I'm out there in front of my band, leading my band with a bass guitar in my hand and a bunch of rhymes in my mouth. And I'm just trying to inspire the world through this music. And that you are. Tell us, why did you want to create a family music album? <laughs> you know, I've always wanted my music to be inspiring and to be empowering. And I've released quite a few adult music albums that I feel like did just that. They were empowering, they were inspiring. 
But there was always a part of me that believed as I grew older in this music industry, I would begin to write books and, and you know, go back to my journalistic <laughs> roots, <laughs> having gone to UC Berkeley to be a journalist and having become a musician and bass player and artist. Um, I always thought this was something that I would do when I was much older. But in 2001, I released my first kids uh, song called I Could Be Anything, which was inspired by something my mom used to tell me when I was younger. But that project didn't really garner any attention and it didn't go anywhere. So I sort of left it for a while, set it on the back burner and thought about bringing it back to life in the future. And now we are in the future. While I'm not as old as I thought I would be when I jumped into this genre, it sort of came to me during the pandemic. You know, a lot of artists were out of touring work. And so uh, the other creative elements inside of us were activated during this time. Looking through Happy and Healthy, it's difficult not to feel happy. And clearly health is important from the very first page because you have a little twist on the well-known children's song. If you're happy and you're healthy, clap your hands. What brought health to the forefront of your concerns? You know, I've always been concerned about health and taking care of my body and making sure that I'm eating properly and that I'm exercising. Growing up, we were extremely active uh, in my household. And my mom was always making sure that we had a balanced meal. <laughs> now that I think about it, there was always a vegetable on the plate. There was a meat. There was a starch. <laughs> So health was always at the forefront uh, of my mind as a child. We were very active on the softball field, in the basketball field, and I ran track. And so uh, we were always uh, conscious about exercising. As a matter of fact, my mom is on her way to the Senior Olympics playing basketball. Oh, you're kidding. No, it's really exciting. <laughs> that is fantastic. Well, clearly her influence informs this book because we see little children of all colors from all different sorts of backgrounds enjoying activity. And you even have a child who has to wear crutches below the, the lyrics to, you can twist your hips, raise your hands. Talk about that intentionality, if you will. First, I'd like to say Nashante Fletcher really brought these lyrics to life with these characters. This is the illustrator. The illustrator with her movements. You know, I believe that because this book was initially part of Scholastic's family and community engagement department, it was really important for it to be all-inclusive. So we wanted children from all walks of life to open this book and see themselves, see their family members, and see their friends. I recently hosted an award show called The Wavy Awards, and that, that show's premise is to highlight people who were traditionally left out of the arts, and that includes people with disabilities. So it's really interesting that in this book, 
and having hosted the Wavy Awards, we are putting a highlight on people who traditionally we have as a society sort of pushed to the side and pushed to the background as though they don't really exist. One of the partners for the Wavy Awards was an artist called Lachi, who identifies as being blind. She has put together an incredible organization that is highlighting artists with disabilities or artists, as she puts it, who identify with disabilities. So that happened in New York a couple of weeks ago. I think one of the impressive things about this book and the important things to consider is that there may be children who have not befriended or perhaps haven't seen differently abled kids. I'm looking at pages eight and nine, and the lyrics are, I love to run and play and jump. And we see two children in wheelchairs tossing a basketball to one another, and a young man in a wheelchair underneath the words, and jump, it keeps my body strong. So how do children respond when they see these images juxtaposed with those words? How do you want them to respond? You know, sometimes I think we, as older people, tend to believe children don't have the capacity to analyze the world and see the world in a positive way. I want children to look at these images and have them be normalized in their lives. I want them to believe and know that just because someone has a disability, it does not keep them from living a happy, healthy, and fulfilled life. And while we may have an idea about what it means to jump and to run and to play and to keep our bodies strong, these children also have an idea about how they run and how they play and how they jump to keep their bodies strong. And for us to allow those ideas about how they see themselves in the world to be real for us as it is real for them. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Atlanta bassist, children's book author, and recording artist Divinity Rocks. You mentioned your mom's balanced meals. There's a portion of the book that shows children just elated about being in the produce aisle of a market. I love to eat my veggies. My favorites are the peas and carrots. Love my broccoli. Oh, please, would you read? The, <laughs> would you read or sing those lyrics? I love to eat my veggies. My favorites are the peas and the greens and the carrots. Even love my broccoli. Listen, I love broccoli. I really Me do. Too. I always have. <laughs> <laughs> Roasted is my favorite. Well, in addition to seeing these children absolutely ecstatic about their veggies and enjoying a snack of an apple or a pear, 
Nishante Fletcher's illustrations do wonders because she blends painted illustrations with what appear to be photographs. Oh, it's fantastic. It is so fantastic. And I have to credit Scholastic with this idea. This was something that initially was not part of the book. But as we were really trying to get it done and making sure that everything was exactly as it should be and perfect, it sort of worked out that we would blend illustration and live pictures. And Scholastic did it in such an artistic way that we've been continually celebrating this part of the book. And I want to give a special shout out to Anna and Tom and Gail and the entire Scholastic team for bringing this beautiful book to life and bringing it to children all over the world. What's really special for me was that I was an avid reader of Scholastic books as a child. I remember when the book fair would come to my school and I would have an envelope full of money, maybe not full of money, but there would be some money in there for me to buy some books. And I would run around the library and look in these huge bookcases and there would be books all over the place and all over the tables and they would be so colorful and beautiful. And I couldn't wait to order those books. And we would actually take the the flyer home and order books in the mail as well. So Scholastic has been a part of my life for a long time. So to grow up, and have the opportunity to work with this company has been absolutely satisfying, I have to say. Oh, what a tribute to them. I loved that too as a child, and I'm so glad to know that in your generation, you still had book fairs. I remember how exciting that was when I was a kid and we had book fairs. It was usually in November for some reason. Maybe the National Library Week or something like that. And I believe Scholastic put out my weekly reader and highlights for children. Yes, yes, that's what Oh, said. wow. Well, we have to ask about the Queen Bee. After touring with the legendary bassist Victor Wooten for five years, you became the bass player and assistant musical director for Beyonce. What was it like touring with her? It was all a dream, (laughs) to quote the great Biggie Smalls. It was empowering, it was affirming, it was fun, it was such an incredible learning experience. I made some really heart-to-heart connections out in the role with Beyonce. I was playing with an incredible band of sisters. We bonded, we saw the world, we connected with audiences, we shared music with people, we shared love, we inspired a generation of women who came after us, little girls come up to us, all of us. And they say, I remember when I went to the Beyonce concert, in whatever respective city they went to the concert in. And they looked on that stage and they saw 
all these women. Not only did they see the focal point, who was Beyonce, but they looked behind her and saw a band full of women supporting each other. And they were able to say, wow, I can do that. I want to do that. Oh, she's playing the drums. Hmm, I'm going to ask for some drums for Christmas. Oh, she's playing the guitar. Oh, what is this instrument? The, the bass guitar? I, I want to do that. So I've met young women <laughs> around the world who have been inspired by us. And I believe that is the most important part of having had that experience. Atlanta bassist, songwriter, and children's author, Divinity Rocks. Her new family album, Ready, Set, Go, and her children's picture book, Happy and Healthy, are out now. Her next children's book, Me and You, will be released tomorrow, December 7th. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear stories for Hanukkah as we listen back to my interview with Emory University professor Miriam Udell. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Sundown today marks the end of Hanukkah 2021, with the eighth candle having been lit last night. Let's close our celebration of the Festival of Lights with a listen back to my interview with Emory University Professor Miriam Udell. When we visited via Zoom last December, she shared Hanukkah stories. And here, Professor Udell explains some common misconceptions about the holiday. Hanukkah is considered a minor holiday on the Jewish calendar cycle. However, because of its proximity to Christmas in, as a December holiday, it's taken on a somewhat outsized importance in the American context in particular. Um, now, when I say a minor holiday, that doesn't mean that it's not special. We, we think all of our, of our holidays are special, but it's a, a holiday that celebrates the triumph of underdogs, the overturning of what seemed like it was going to be a cruel fate, 
and turning aside that fate for something happier. Yes. So it's essentially a festival as distinctive from a serious holy day. That's right. It, it is a time for lighting candles and, and brightening up the dark winter nights and a time of levity and a time when we tend to focus on children and giving them a wonderful holiday experience, but that's not to the exclusion of adults who, who also need to tap into something meaningful about lighting up the darkness. Yes, Hanukkah is a lighthearted observance, a time for humor and playing games, adults included. How does that inform the stories you have for us today, Miriam? Sure. So one of the customs of Hanukkah is to play with a spinning top that's called a dreidel. Dreyen is the Yiddish word for turning, turning about or spinning. And so the dreidel is marked with letters that are an acronym for a great miracle happened there, or the dreidels that are produced in the, or the Holy Land in Israel are marked with a great miracle happened here. But either way, uh, we spin the dreidel, and depending on which letter it lands on, we either take coins or M&Ms or whatever we're playing with from the pot or we put them back in, which means that it's a game for stakes. It's a gambling game. And not only did Jews play dreidel in Eastern European tradition, but they also played all kinds of other games for stakes around Hanukkah, such as cards, various kinds of gambling card games. And so that becomes one of the important themes that we see in the Hanukkah stories that the classic Yiddish writers composed for adults. And I'd like to talk about a couple of those today. Please. The version of the holiday we know in the U.S. is somewhat far removed from the original intention of the Festival of Lights, though much of the observance of Hanukkah in the U.S. is very well-meaning in terms of its inclusivity. Do you agree? I do. It's, it's really a holiday that is so ancient and carries so many potential messages and has been thought about and, and written about in different ways. And I think when when you're talking about any sort of ancient cultural artifact, it takes on new meaning every time. But coming back to, to what you're asking about, Lois, um, I would love to talk a little bit at first about a story by Sholem Alechem called Dos Dreidel, the Dreidel, that was translated very elegantly by Eliza Chevron as Benny's Luck. So this is a story that focuses on a boy who has lost his father, which in traditional Jewish culture marks him as an orphan. If you have lost either parent, you are considered an orphan, which is a special status in the sense that the Bible cautions us to take particular care with the, the feelings and the well-being of widows and orphans. And so that's uh, 
that's a mandate that's often observed in the breach in Yiddish literature. So the little boy at the, the center of the story has a very hardworking mom um, who can't really afford any luxuries, but who manages to scrape together a subsistence living and send him to the local Jewish elementary school or cheder. And when he gets there, he finds a pretty cold reception among the other boys. They belong to more prosperous families, mostly, mostly two-parent families, and he's really bullied at school until the biggest, richest kind of alpha boy, a boy named Benny, <laughs> takes our protagonist under his wing and fends off the would-be hazers and, and bullies of this boy. And so he wins a kind of hangdog loyalty and gratitude from the protagonist, who's, who's never named, so I have to keep calling him the, the protagonist. And that's great until Hanukkah time comes and everybody starts playing dreidel and gambling away whatever little bit of anything they have. They have buttons, they have nuts and raisins. Some of them even receive Hanukkah gelt, um, a few coins for the holiday. And Benny, the, the erstwhile protector, keeps winning and winning every round. And our protagonist, who's also our narrator, it's a first person narration, he's, he's looking back on these times from adulthood and he's talking about this, this holiday time when he was in elementary school. And he said that he became so desperate to try to reverse all of his losses. He got sucked into the gambling so badly that he put up as a collateral a prayer book that his mother had gotten for him, a beautiful little prayer book that contained everything you could, you could possibly desire that his mother had purchased for him as a, a keepsake in memory of his pious and deceased father. And he loses that too. So he really loses everything. And he has this terrible nightmare that his father comes to him and asks him, do you even know the anniversary date, the memorial date of my passing so that you can say the prayer for me? And the boy has forgotten when his father passed away. So he's really symbolically severed that paternal connection because of this gambling with Benny. And the narrator says, whippings heal, but memories are never forgotten. And years later, he's an adult and he's in the train station and he recognizes Benny, who by now is quite stout and he's wearing a gold watch chain that spans his, his belly. And they, they meet each other uh, on the train and they're reminiscing about old times. And the narrator sort of tentatively brings up, hey, Benny, you remember that year that you beat everyone so badly at dreidel? It was like you couldn't lose. And, and Benny starts laughing. He can barely get out the words. He's laughing so hard. And he says, oh, that dreidel? That dreidel was loaded. That dreidel was rigged. I couldn't lose. And that's where the story leaves off. That's a heartbreaking story. I mean, that's a tear-jerking story, Miriam. What's the moral? 
it is. So, so Sholem Alechem uh, is remembered as a humorist and as a comic writer, and he absolutely is. But it is, as he put it, Gelechter durch Tränen, laughter through tears. And one of the things that really brought him to tears was contemplating the, the economic inequality that was baked into the world then and now. And he tried to really raise consciousness about the unfairness of how, how things worked so that one kid has a trick dreidel and can beat everybody else and, and take everything that they've got. And that's at the micro level. And at the macro level, he felt that the whole um, economic arrangement of modernity with, with the stock markets and, you know, modern bourses and exchanges was just a version of that rigged dreidel writ large. Mm. So this is an anti-materialistic holiday story. Yes. Very much so. Isaac Bashevis Singer is the name of an author many people who aren't familiar with Yiddish culture may know because he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He was the only Yiddish writer ever to win the Nobel Prize. And he wrote a number of Hanukkah stories, especially for children. What can you tell us about a Hanukkah Eve in Warsaw? Sure. So this is one of my favorites. He has an entire volume of Hanukkah stories for children called The Power of Light and several other stories uh, sprinkled in, in other places, other collections. And uh, one of the things that I love about a Hanukkah Eve in Warsaw is that it's very realistic and it's a memoir of his own boyhood, the Hanukkah when he was, I think, about 10 years old. And he was referred to as Itche, which is one of the affectionate diminutive names for Isaac. And so he describes how he attended a cheder, again, an elementary school for Jewish boys at the time, a cheder full of kids whose parents earned more money. Once again, that theme of being the disadvantaged boy at cheder, um, more money than his parents did. His father was a very pious rabbi. And his parents not only are poorer than those of his peers, but they're more overprotective. So they have hired the assistant teacher to walk him to and from school every day, which is a form of assistance that none of his friends require. And he, he gets teased about it and he feels awful. So on the eve of this particular Hanukkah, the assistant teacher begs off and asks if he can manage to get himself home because he, the teacher, has other things to do. And little Itcha is thrilled to have this taste of independence. So he starts walking home and the gray sky turns into a blizzard and this snowstorm overtakes him and he loses the way and he ends up one street over from the very pious neighborhood where his family lives. 
and he's in a completely different world. There is an electric streetcar, and there are restaurants, and there are businesses, and of course the sun sets probably at 3.30 p.m. So this is all happening in the dark on the first night of Hanukkah. And he, he ends up nearly being hit by a streetcar and somebody whisks him into a restaurant and offers him something to eat and asks him you know, who he is. And he, for reasons he can't even understand, he just uh, comes out with this lie and says he's an orphan. And then somebody else comes into the restaurant and says, orphan, what orphan? I know who he is. He's Rabbi, you know, Rabbi Singer's boy. And so they, they bring him back to his apartment building and he's too embarrassed to go home. So he goes over to the home of his friend, Shosha, who has a whole novella devoted to her in the, in the Singer canon. And he's playing there with her and fantasizing about running away when his mother and sister come in in a huff. They've been looking for him all evening. They're worried sick. They drag him home and they just want to get going with the Hanukkah observance. They just want to light the candles and eat the potato pancakes, the latkes, and spin the dreidel. And his sister is fuming and his mother is kind of wry and annoyed, and his father is absolutely angelically indulgent, and his, his sister wonders, why does the worst dog always get the best bone? And of course, his sister um, in real life is an author, was an author named Hinde Esther Kreitman, who grew up to be an author in her own right. It was a very literary family. He had an older brother who was a novelist and a sister who wrote a thinly disguised memoiristic novel about her experience as a girl in a family with three brothers and she was always put upon and they always got the best of everything. And his story, you know, kind of bears out the truth that Hinde Esther Kreitman was writing about. Emory University professor Miriam Udell. That entire interview is available for streaming on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear about the dinosaurs of Antarctica with Fernbank Museum's Sarah Arnold. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. When you think of Antarctica today, you probably imagine an icy, barren place with penguins and freezing temperatures. Well, 200 million years ago, it was a lush, temperate rainforest, home to crocodile-sized amphibians and rhinoceros-sized dinosaurs. The Fernbank Museum explores these aspects in their new exhibition, Dinosaurs of Antarctica. Sarah Arnold is the Director of Education at Fernbank. 
She joins us now via Zoom. Sarah, welcome back to City Lights. Hi there, glad to be here. Now, please, if you will, take us back 200 million years in your time machine to describe Antarctica and its inhabitants. Yeah, so Antarctica, 200 million years ago, didn't look or feel anything like it does today. It was almost tropical and it was not on its own. It was connected to other land masses. It was connected to Australia. And part of the reason it was so warm and lush is because the ocean currents, which move around those land masses, were not what they are today. There was a warm water current that surrounded the, it was called Gondwana. There was a warm ocean current that surrounded the Antarctica and Australian continents when they were connected. And so that kept the climate very mild and temperate. Uh, there was a lot of lush plant life. Uh, and as you mentioned, some, uh, some very large amphibians and reptiles. Which no doubt appealed tremendously to many of the people, and I think those would be younger people attending your exhibition. How did scientists discover this aspect of Antarctica once having been a main a rainforest? So back in the 1800s, this was uh, quite some time ago, there were explorers and fishermen circling the Southern Oceans. It wasn't until 1820 that the first person spotted and recorded the continent of Antarctica. And if you think about what else was going on in 1820, and that was the Industrial Revolution, that was the uh, westward expansion here in America. So thinking about this continent, it, it's relatively new in terms of discovery. One of the things that they found is that even though 98% of this continent is constantly covered by ice, the 2% that isn't did have fossils. It had fossils. Um, in fact, it was a wash with fossils. And so they were able to take some of those, those fossils back over the course of the next couple hundred years, of course, and uh, and study them and figure out what sort of life was there. Oh, it must have been a shocking discovery. Oh, yes. <laughs> what were the working conditions for scientists who were excavating in Antarctica? Well, uh, it depends on when they traveled there. So the, the first explorers to reach Antarctica and attempt to make it to the South Pole wore much more primitive clothing than what we have today. Uh, in fact, there's a really great story in the exhibit about the race to reach the South Pole and the difference between the Norwegian team and the American team in terms of the tools that they used and the clothing that they wore. And those differences made, basically there was a, there was a big gap. Um, the Norwegian team beat the American team to the South Pole by five weeks because they were better prepared. Now, researchers today have much more mm, tactical clothing to, to wear. They have many base layers. Um, they have 
eyewear that shields their eyes from the reflective sun, all sorts of stuff. Now, it is still uh, incredibly hostile, the environment. It is the coldest place on Earth. So the average is negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit. The wow. average. Mm -hmm. It is also the driest place. So it receives little to no rainfall over the course of a year. So it's still very, very harsh conditions, even with all of the all of the modern tools and clothing that we have. Hmm. And what type of dinosaurs roamed Antarctica at the time? There are several examples in this exhibit of dinosaurs that lived in Antarctica 200 million years ago. And some of them are rather small. There are some small, I would say probably maybe large dog-sized dinosaurs called sauropodomorphs. They have a similar body shape to some of the larger uh, sauropods like Argentinosaurus, where they have a very long neck and a very long tail and a stout body with four kind of pillar-shaped legs, but they were small. Uh, again, maybe large dog-sized. The star of the exhibit, of course, is Cryolophosaurus. Cryolophosaurus. Cryolophosaurus was actually the size of a bull moose, a bull moose. It stood about 12 feet high, weighed about 1,500 pounds. It's a very large dinosaur. And this one is exceptional because uh, dating that fossil reveals that these animals existed in the early Jurassic period. That is significant because we don't have many dinosaurs recorded from that time. So whether it was one of the first or just the oldest that we have, it's a pretty significant find, this one. And it's 12 feet tall. Did I read correctly? 25 feet long? Is that possible? Yes, 25 feet long. It was an absolutely massive dinosaur. You did not want that cryolophosaurus to step on your foot by accident. Oh, no, that would, that would hurt. <laughs> <laughs> this year marks the 20th anniversary of Fernbank's Giants of the Mesozoic exhibition. How does this show differ from the earlier exhibits, Sarah? What I really like about this particular exhibit is that while it features dinosaurs, it addresses some of the other pieces of the dinosaur puzzle. For instance, it talks about the human element. It talks about the people that are doing this research and what kind of research you can do in Antarctica and how you do it, which is, um, I feel a, an area of science that is sometimes overlooked when we're creating these exhibits. We, you know, we want to talk about the content and we sort of miss the, the people and the, uh, the studies and the careers that are behind what we're seeing. It's really neat. One of the other pieces that I like is that uh, it ties the past to the present. So you know, it talks about the people doing the research, and then there's a whole gallery on the findings of that research. So you can look at, for instance, the growth rate of lichens to discover how quickly the climate is changing. 
you can look at ice cores and find prehistoric pollen grains. So you can study what types of plants were around in, in different eras. There's a lot more to the exhibit than just dinosaurs. And I really appreciate the fact that it is more well-rounded in terms of talking about the people and talking about the findings. That's really important. To that point, does the exhibition address the impact of climate change for today? It does. There is a gallery, again, that, that talks about the findings of the research that's being done in Antarctica, and it does address the increase in the calving of the ice sheets, so how quickly they are melting. It does address the fact that we can find sometimes air bubbles in these ice cores from hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago, and that allows us to test what the air was like long ago. So we can look at the differences between the chemical makeup of the air then versus the chemical makeup of the air now. And that, that sort of uh, really solidifies the argument of climate change or now a climate crisis. Oh, that is fascinating. The film, Dinosaurs of Antarctica accompanies the exhibition. What can you tell us about this movie? The Dinosaurs of Antarctica movie or Antarctic Dinosaurs uh, movie, it pairs, it's actually a pair. It comes with the exhibit. So it complements the content of the exhibit very, very well. If guests were to come see the exhibit, I would highly recommend seeing the movie because there is a lot of context and content in the film uh, that you might not necessarily get with the exhibit. Mm -hmm. And I understand there are some interactive elements of the show as well. Yes, I think my two favorites are the research mission race where you select what kind of scientist you want to be and you have to pack up your sled to go out and do your research safely. So you have to pick what kind of gear you're gonna wear. You have to pick what kind of food and tools you're gonna take. And then you race another person who has selected their own researcher and their own gear. And you see what it takes to stay safe and uh, conduct successful research in Antarctica. So that one is really fun. That's a, it's a touch screen digital game. The other piece that I really like is the Pangea puzzle. So what this shows us is how the continental plates were arranged in Pangea. And it goes an extra step because it shows us that fossil records solidify the theory of Pangea and the theory of plate tectonics, that the continents move around because you can find some of the same fossils across five different land masses, the exact same fossils. And the only way that that's possible is if those land masses were once connected. So that's a really fun one. You, it's, a, it's magnetic wooden puzzle pieces that you can take off of a flat surface that is a map of the earth and put them on a globe so that they all fit together. Fernbanks Director of Education, Sarah Arnold. Fernbank Museum's new exhibition, Dinosaurs of Antarctica, is on view now through January 9th. 
More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the great soul food cook-off is airing on Discovery+. Plus. And we'll visit with two of the star judges from the show, Eric Ajapong and Melba Wilson. Plus, a Charlie Brown Christmas returns to Atlanta next week, and we'll hear the festive plans from Atlanta drummer Jeffrey Bootser and keyboardist Titi Mahoney. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.